I didn't want the Grace Project to only be about addiction. I wanted it to be about hope because my story is not one, you know, about addiction. It's about hope and the power that hope can have and when it's restored in you, what it can do, you know, hope and faith. That's Megan Cohen, founder of The Grace Project in Warrington, Pennsylvania, a suburb of Philadelphia. And as you listen to excerpts of our conversation, you'll see that this is a story about a woman's personal journey of redemption and generosity and a quest to pay it forward. Welcome to People Making a Difference podcast about people who are step-by-step making a better world. I'm Dave Scott. Welcome, Meg. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Meg was a good student, played sports, had friends, but in high school, she started partying, first using alcohol, then a few pills because she told me that She thought she was too smart to get hooked. But the path to addiction is often a slippery slope, and a familiar one for families caught in what's become a national opioid epidemic. By the time she was 26, she'd been in and out of 71 rehab centers, and in jail four times, mostly for theft. She'd lived homeless in the streets of Miami, Detroit, Palm Springs, and the Kensington neighborhood of Philadelphia, which is the biggest outdoor drug market on the East Coast. But there was a turning point about two years ago. She was the recipient of small acts of kindness by complete strangers. So I started by asking her about those acts of kindness and why they touched her. When total strangers, you know, reminded me that I was still a person, the impact that it had, it just, it kind of like restored hope in me. I was at the point where I didn't think I could ever live a different life. I'd been in so many treatment centers, in and out of jail, homeless all over the place, you know, and was at the point where my family, rightfully so, didn't really want much to do with me. There was a lot of people that I encountered when I was out there, but the last one was a woman that ended up, you know, taking me into her house. And that's something I always tell people. I'm like, I don't recommend taking somebody who was in the state of, of mind that I was in into your home the way that she did. But for me, that was what I needed at the time. And, you know, the connection that we had because there was a language barrier there, you know, just through a woman who was translating. And then we went into the house, just the two of us. And she let me take a shower, gave me clean clothes and gave me food. And before I left, we just looked into each other's eyes and both of us started crying. You know, and she didn't know me from a can of paint. I never talked to this woman before in my life and we couldn't use words to communicate. But that kind of said it all. And I looked at that as like my God moment. And that's kind of when I started opening up to the fact that like there was something watching over me and maybe I meant for more and like, maybe let's just give this one more chance. Um, You know, and I called my mom and told her she could come pick me up and she turned me into jail that night. And that was, that was the start of my journey to actually finding recovery. Wow. So what did you mean by when you said that was my God moment? You know, I I was never really a religious person. I wasn't brought up religious, um, you know, not spiritual or, or anything along those lines. But there was no denying that there was something or someone watching over me. You know, I should be dead at this point. The amount of times that I've overdosed or been in situations that I shouldn't have been able to get out of and I was able to get out of, there's definitely something looking out. And then when this happened, you know, I was actually, I was in an abandoned house um, right before I walked out and encountered this woman. And 
when my back was against the wall and I had nobody else to turn to and I was just by myself out in the streets, all of a sudden I started praying. And um, I would just be begging God, like, show me a sign that my life is meant for more. Show me that this isn't what it's going to be or just take me. You know, intervene in some way because I can't do this anymore. And I walked out of that house after saying exactly that. And the woman that came up to me, and this lady doesn't even know me, it just seemed like it, it was a direct answer to my prayers. And then looking at everything else that had happened in my life and so many times where, you know, I call my higher power God, you know, that God was present in my life and the situations that I had been in that in my eyes, you know, he helped me get out of. It, it was just, I, I, I couldn't be resistant to it anymore. So after that God moment, Meg calls her mom to come pick her up, knowing that her mom would legally and morally have to turn her into the police. Meg had outstanding warrants for her arrest. So Meg serves two months in jail. Then a drug court judge decides to give her one more shot at turning around her life and sends her to a rehab program instead of the Pennsylvania State Prison. Fast forward one year later, Meg is in recovery, still sober. She's got a job. And that's when, after a conversation with her mom, she starts the Grace Project. Every Thursday night, Meg and other volunteers go to the streets of Philadelphia to hand out food and water, clothing and hygiene kits. Essentially, she's going back to the same places where she lived on the streets. The Grace Project has been going on now for about a year. But I asked Meg how it got started. So it's actually kind of crazy how it all happened. Um, so basically the night that my mom came and got me, I had asked her to bring out some water and food for the people that were out there, and she did. And when she saw the reaction that, you know, the people had out there when she brought the food, that did something for her, and it felt good for me. Mm-hmm. And I had said to my mom, and like, not even necessarily believing that it was true, but like one day I'm going to come back out here, you know, and I'm going to do something good and I'm going to give back. And I don't know if I really meant it. I knew that I wanted to, but I still, I still wasn't sure if I was going to be able to turn my life around. So when COVID hit, my mom, uh, it was, you know, a couple months in and my mom texted me and she was like, Hey, if I were to go bring food out to Kensington, like what areas would I go to? And I was like, you're crazy. If you think you're going out there without me, like you don't know the area like I do, I'm going to go with you. I'll make a post on Facebook. And um, I made this post and the post took off. And, you know, a bunch of people wanted to get involved and people wanted to donate. And I wanted the integrity of it to be protected because I felt like it could go so much further than what we were already doing. So that's when I I was saving up to move out of a recovery house at the time. And um, I used the money that I was saving up to file all the paperwork to become incorporated you know, again, to to protect the integrity of the Grace Project. So I had to come up with a name. Mm -hmm. And I remember going back and forth about it for days. And um, the recovery house owner, actually, I was on the phone with her because we were really close at this point. I was managing the house. And, um, you know, we're like, well, what could we do? Should it be like an acronym? And she was like, well, I always like the idea of grace. And I was like, well, I do too, you know, because like I've been showed grace in my life, like even the life that I have today, like I I look at that as God's grace, you know, because I don't necessarily deserve it. So first it was going to be grateful recovering addicts caring for each other. Um, Mm -hmm. But again, I had like this bigger vision. I didn't want the Grace Project to only be about Kensington or only be about addiction. I wanted it to be about hope. 
because my story is not one, you know, about addiction. It's about hope and the power that hope can have. And when it's restored in you, what it can do, you know, hope and faith. And then eventually I ended up just taking out the acronym completely and leaving it as GRACE. So now it's just specifically the GRACE Project, you know, and the name is very fitting because it's it's all about acts of kindness, you know, for people that for, for whatever reason have lost hope in their lives. Hmm. Beautiful. I love it. So I was on your website and I saw the, the uh, you've got t-shirts and hoodies and things like that. And on the back of the t-shirts, it says hope dealer. Yes. Which I think is very clever, of course, but it's also kind of a tall promise. What have you learned about dealing hope? Well, I mean, I would say, honestly, the the best thing that I have to offer is my own personal story because my own story is like hitting that complete rock bottom, you know, and feeling what it's like to feel complete hopelessness and then having that restored. So all that I can do and like that my volunteers can do is bring a message to people that your life can get better. Um, and that's really what it's it's all about. It's, it's showing people kindness. It, it's showing them that they're still cared about, you know? Mm-hmm. And... and- Given that perspective that you can bring, when you have a conversation with someone on the street, do you feel like they're listening? Do I mean, going back to Meg of five years ago, mm-hmm. when you're talking to somebody, you think, oh, they're not listening, they're not ready, or how do you kind of gauge where they are in that journey and when they're, whether they're willing to be helped? Yeah. So I, I honestly, I try not to gauge it. And they might not say that day, hey, I want to go to treatment. But if they're not ready, then then they're not ready. So again, all we can do is try to plant those seeds. And, you know, like it, it can be frustrating sometimes where it's like, I just want to shake people and be like, your life can be so much better. Like you're you're wasting it out here. You know, but I mm-hmm. it's their process. So again, all I can do is try to plant a little bit of hope and, and see what comes from it. But we have gotten some people into treatment. Um, you know, we've had we've even had some of our volunteers go out and speak in treatment centers. And one of them had somebody come up to him and he recognized him from going out on on a Thursday and talking to him and giving him food. So, you know, it definitely makes an impact. So it's just being patient and not getting discouraged because most of the people out there, they're not ready. And I always have to tell my volunteers before we go out, you're going to want to save everyone, especially when you have a conversation with somebody out there and you can see that they're a genuine person. And that they can be so much more. It, it hurts sometimes because you just want to, you just want to make them go, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can't do that. We can't do that. We can just be available when they're ready and bring a message out there, and and that's it. Let's go back to the idea, though. That what advice would you give to the family of someone struggling with addiction? Now your relationships are good, but mm-hmm. over the last ten years, and particularly probably when you were first on this journey. There were some difficult times between you and your family. And and if you were giving advice to another family who's wrestling with that, the challenge of watching a child or a sibling become addicted to drugs, what would you say? Um, I mean, if, it, if it's in the early stages, intervention in any way possible, whether that's getting them the education or pushing somebody to go to treatment before it, it gets out of control, any of those early intervention things like that, that's huge because once it continues to progress, it gets harder and harder, like the point that I got to. And then on the other end of it, like when things are bad like that, the best thing that my mom did was finally telling me I didn't have the option of coming back home to her house, not giving me money, not enabling me in any way, no matter what story I told her. She, Because I used to come up with the most off-the-wall stories to try to get money out of her, get her to let me come home. 
you know, and she had to put her foot down because she had to stop depriving me of my bottom, if that makes sense. So I had to hit that bottom. But in reality, me being under her roof wasn't keeping me from using. And it was making a little bit easier for me to think that things were under control while I was under her roof. Whereas when she kicked me out, that unmanageability was screaming in my face every day, like, this is not okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're not okay right now. You know, so I would say, like, the biggest thing, it, it's hard, but not enabling. And that doesn't mean necessarily, because like I said, my, my family wasn't really talking to me, but they made it very clear that they were there when I wanted help. So they let me know that I was loved. I was aware that they loved me and I was aware that they were there when I was I was done doing the things that I was doing, but they weren't going to, you know, sit on the sidelines and watch me kill myself anymore. They were done with that. I love you. I'm here to help you, but I'm not going to enable you anymore. You know, and then I reached my bottom quicker. So you'd been in rehab, you'd you tried to get off drugs like 70 times at this point. What happened on that 71st attempt that was so different? Um, I think it was honestly, it was just the fact that there was so much evidence in front of me that my way didn't work. Mm. And I had had somebody years back say to me to stop trying to outsmart the program and stop trying to outsmart my disease. Because for so long, part of why I couldn't get it was because I kept trying to do it my way. And for me to run the show and not having faith in something bigger than myself. And I wish that I realized that sooner, but I just, I wasn't open to it. I really thought that, you know, there's no way that this little powder or this little crack rock is more powerful than I am. And, you know, it just, it didn't work out. Um, so with so many attempts, it was just, it was clear as day. Mm-hmm. And I, I I always say like, I wish I stopped trying to outsmart it a lot sooner because I can't imagine where my life would be at today mm-hmm. if I wasn't so stubborn. So I'm thinking back to the first story you told us where you were a recipient of an act of kindness. This woman brought you in and gave you a a shower, the stranger did. And it, it seems like in a sense that, that you've come full circle, um, that you are now the stranger offering kindness in Kensington. So how has the Grace Project transformed you over the past year? So I would say, honestly, just it, it keeps it fresh for me, you know, going out there and being reminded of where I came from and what I got out of. And then there's not really words to describe, like, the feeling that I get when somebody does want to get help, what that does, like it, it fills my cup up spiritually. It fills my cup up. Um, mm. Your life is actually great compared to what it was and, and compared to what these other people are going through. And then also on the other end of that, trying to be the person that that tries to to pull them out of that or at least make them feel a little bit better, whether it's temporary or, you know, really like completely pulls them out of it, just doing something, mm-hmm. you know, to make them feel better. And it's it's been a learning process like nonprofits, there's a lot that goes into it that I didn't know. Um, and like I said, I didn't plan for it. And, and I work full time and I'm in school. So it's like, there's so much that I still have to learn and I'm still figuring out, but it's like really, it's really showed me that I'm capable of anything that I put my mind to. It's like, if we put our minds to something and, and we put our full effort into it, we can do it. Um, and that's been something that that's really been great that I've gotten out of the Grace Project and kind of, you know, valuing myself more and realizing that, you know, I can do it. I don't know if you heard it, but I was impressed when Meg began her Grace Project and the donations started to flow that she wanted the project to have integrity. That meant setting up a proper nonprofit, registering it and creating a governing board and a treasurer. This is still a baby nonprofit. 
barely a year old. And while it was born out of Meg's recovery and a desire to give back, she's got a bigger vision, as she says, to grow beyond helping addicts. She recently started the Give a Little Hope program for children dealing with poverty, illness, or parental addiction. And Meg and her board are looking at other ideas, such as supporting other Good Samaritans in the community. To learn more about her efforts, go to the website, teamgraceproject.org. And here's this week's challenge. Commit an act of kindness to a stranger. It doesn't have to be a grand gesture like bringing a person who is homeless into your home for a shower. It can be something modest, such as letting a stranger go ahead of you in line, or lending a helping hand, or paying it forward at Starbucks. Then, tell me how it went. Call me at 617-450-2410 and leave me a voice message about what happened. That's 617-450-2410. And thanks for listening to People Making a Difference, a podcast about people like you who are step-by-step making a better world. This podcast is produced by the Christian Science Monitor. Copyright 2021.